if you get up in the morning and your sole intent is to make money for your shareholders, you'll miss some really great opportunities to do a lot of good for a lot of people. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Kenneth Frazier, the CEO of Merck. Frazier came to campus as part of a speaker series where MBA students sit down to interview top leaders from around the world. Kenneth Frazier has pushed his company to invest in treatments for serious diseases, even when it meant that profits could suffer. At his visit to Stanford Graduate School of Business, he discussed drug pricing, board diversity, and gave out career advice. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. So Ken, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. I'm thrilled to be here. As uh, Sarah alluded to in your introduction, you had an upbringing and a start to your career as a death penalty lawyer that was very different to most of your compatriots in the Fortune 500. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that upbringing, that experience in your early career shaped you as a man? So let me just start by saying, again, I'm thrilled to be here. It's a wonderful place to be. Um, You know, I think what my upbringing really taught me, because I was born on the other side of the tracks, and had the opportunity because social engineers engaged in what was then called school desegregation. I was raised in the inner city of Philadelphia, uh, had many older siblings, but my younger sister and I were born at a time when experimentation was happening in America. And one of the experiments was what was called school desegregation, which is different from integration. It meant that the social engineers in Philadelphia felt that a few inner city black children should be put on buses for 90 minutes one way to go to the best schools in Philadelphia. As a result of that, which by the way I hated as a child, uh, I realized now looking back that I was given an opportunity that most of my friends and even my siblings were not given. And so I think what that caused me to realize is that there is in fact this opportunity gap that exists in our society that if you're lucky to be put on a bus 90 minutes a day, it closes that gap for you. But there are lots of other people who are similarly talented uh, who don't get those opportunities. So I started off, I guess, in, in my career thinking about how do we, those of us who are lucky enough to have these opportunities, how do we give back? How do we figure out how we can help those other people who were not so fortunate, not so privileged to actually reach their full potential? You were a lawyer for a long time. Um, you weren't, a- but not in a pejorative sense of the word. Okay. <laughs> uh, you weren't. You weren't a business lawyer, um, and then now you're the CEO of one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. How does that happen? How does a lawyer get to that stage? So the first thing I have to say about career paths is, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people, is that there's an element of serendipity in everybody's career path. So I never aspired to be a pharmaceutical executive. Uh, as, as you mentioned, I had the opportunity in the private practice of law to do things that I thought were really great adventures, whether it's teaching in South Africa or doing death penalty work. Um, but one day, um, the phone rang. Uh, and uh, I answered the phone, and it was uh, the general counsel of Merck, who said, I'd like you to come and meet with me and the then CEO of Merck, a really great CEO named Roy Vagelos, one of the greatest CEOs of uh, you know, the recent history. I want you to come and interview with us because we'd like to, to bring you to Merck. And I said, well, okay, I'll come interview. And I, I went home that night and I said uh, to my wonderful spouse, Andrea, who's in the front row, 
that I intended to humor my client by going for an interview. And she said, you know, honey, I don't want to tell you about your business, but this whole law firm thing is a cruel hoax, and you might want to think more openly about it. So I did what she told me to say, to do. <laughs> and uh, I ended up going to Merck a little bit against my will, because I didn't think it would be nearly as adventuresome being in a corporation as being in a firm where you can represent anybody that you wanted. Um, but little did I know that there was going to be a, a real adventure inside Merck, too. Through serendipity or not, a lot of us have ended up here at the GSB. Uh, we're all doing MBAs. In the past, you've been quoted as being slightly sceptical of the MBA as a degree. Um, I believe the exact words were, I'm not sure Bill Gates ever had one. Um, <laughs> don't, don't worry, we get that a lot. Uh, but I'm curious, what is it you think we're missing? What is it you think we need to go out and learn in the next phase of our careers? So let me say that um, I think... Um, business education really has its value. So you should be encouraged to hear me say that. Uh, but, but I think the issues that we face in business are broader than the traditional issues around finance, around uh, marketing. Um, I think the issues that we have to address as, uh, as businesses are generally the issues that society faces. I believe that the biggest problems that we have in society can only be addressed through sustainable means. And I think businesses can address those issues, but only if their leaders are willing to take a broad point of view about what it is that the business exists to do. What is the fundamental purpose of the business? You know, we have this discussion now, and fortunately, I think with people like Larry Fink, it's become more of a, a widespread discussion about whether corporations exist solely to create value for their shareholders or whether they have a broader purpose in the world. I happen to believe very strongly that a company like Merck has a real, broad, significant, salient purpose in the world. It's 127 years old, and the reason why it's lasted for more than a century is that its purpose goes beyond simply making money for its shareholders. Uh, if you get up in the morning and your sole intent is to make money for your shareholders, you'll miss some really great opportunities to do a lot of good for a lot of people. That must be particularly hard for a company like Merck, where you've got employees, you've got shareholders, and most of all, I presume you've got patients. How do you go about weighing up those different constituents when you, whenever you make a decision? Well, you know, there's no formulaic way to do it, obviously. But I think the first thing is that you have to remember that the company exists for this purpose. So I, I came to work for a really great CEO named Roy Vagelos, and I could tell you a lot of stories, but the thing that I remember more than anything else is he used to say to me, and he still says to me, he's 89 years old and I still see him frequently. He says, you know, there are a lot of metrics around the way the company operates. But just remember at Merck, there are two fundamental metrics that if you remember as CEO, you can go through all your operating reviews and you can look at your margins and you can look at your cost of goods sold. You can look at all these wonderful metrics. But there's only two metrics in the end that matter. Number one, how many people do you help? And number two, how much help do you give those people? And if you're maximizing the number of people you help and you're maximizing the amount of good that you do for the people that you are helping, then all of those other metrics will fall into place. I'd love to unpack that some more later on, later on in the interview. Um, but firstly, 
There were a few times when I was researching this uh, for this interview that I came across times when you'd had to make really, really difficult choices, made very brave choices. For example, um, taking the James Cochran case, leaving the President's Manufacturing Council. You also took on the highly sensitive internal investigation into the Paterno-Sandusky case at Penn State, and I hugely admired how you held your ground against some people who are trying to sweep certain elements of it um, sort of under the rug. How do you know when to act when other people around you are being silent or indecisive? Well, you know, I had great parents, uh, but my mother died when I was young, so I had the experience of being raised by a single-parent father who was like a drill sergeant. He was a very unsentimental person. But he said to me when I was very young, probably the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten from anybody else, and, and here it is in a nutshell. He used to say to me, Kenny, what other people think about you is none of your damn business. And, you know, when I was young, I would think, how could that be? You know, I want to be light. I want to be friendly with all my colleagues around me. I want people to like me and, and, and enjoy being around me. But the, the more I've experienced in life, I understand exactly what he was saying. He was saying that if you can focus on what's the right thing to do, irrespective of whether people around you like you or not, then you can do the right thing. So every one of those situations, the Sandusky investigation was a very difficult investigation. I'm a very proud alum of Penn State. Um, the, the week before the Sandusky grand jury, I actually exchanged correspondence with Joe Paterno, who there'll never be another coach like Joe Paterno. No one will ever coach at a school for 60 years. He was a great man. He did a lot of wonderful things. But when we began to see some of the things that were happening behind the scenes as a board, then we had to decide whether we were going to put the children first or whether we were going to put the reputation of the university first. And we chose to do what we thought was the right thing. I can't say that everybody agrees with us. In fact, many of our alums think we should have represented the university. We should have defended the university. We should have defended the football program. And I think they have a legitimate point of view uh, from where they sit. At the end of the day, though, it seemed to me that what was right in the long run was that we took a strong stand for what needs to happen for children. And you see it happening everywhere. You see it happening at Michigan State now, right, where the same kinds of things went on. So I think that whether it's Penn State, you take a death penalty case, it sounds great in retrospect. When you start that case, my client was 13 days before his execution date. There was a lot of hostility in that small part of Alabama because people had bought into the story that the conviction was correct. And in comes this northern lawyer, by the way, wearing a blue suit, which you're not supposed to wear in that part of Alabama because we're still fighting that war. Um, <laughs> and I'm here to say that the community's perspective, that the community's story about what happened in the night in question is wrong. That creates a great deal of anger in the people around you. And the only way in which you can do that on a consistent basis is you really have to believe what my father said. What they think about you ultimately is none of your business. You talked about doing the right thing. Um, and I think a lot of people think we're at a turning point in society at the moment. There's a real loss of trust in institutions. Um, Absolutely. There's, uh, and, and you mentioned earlier to us in the green room, the, the kind of conflict you see between capitalism and democracy in this country and mm -hmm. accepting a certain amount of social inequality. Is, is there a solution to this or is this a, a, an endless series of decisions where we have to rely on people to make the right one every time? Well, I don't think that I can sit here and give you 
one short set of solutions. What I would say is that what I am greatly concerned about our society is the inability, the seeming inability for us to have nuanced, constructive conversations about the issues that exist in our society. And we will never reach constructive solutions unless we can have those conversations. So, for example, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, frankly, I think as I was a, growing up in the 70s, I would have viewed myself as a socialist. The concept that I'm running a large pharmaceutical company to me, sometimes I just can't believe it's true, right? I remember having an economics professor in undergraduate school, and he was talking about capitalism. He happened to be from Eastern Europe, Professor Albensky. Was from, was from Eastern Europe, and he was talking about the virtues of the capitalist system. And I remember saying to him, you're so conservative. And he walked over, and he leaned over. He looked at me. He said, and you, sonny boy, have nothing yet to conserve. <laughs> I really get him now. <laughs> so, so here I am, a staunch defender of the free market. Well, the free market inherently requires some level of economic inequality. Those people who create value are going to have more resources than those people who consume value. We can't say that everybody's going to have exactly the same amount of resources. I accept that. I think it's actually the best economic system in the world. However, if you allow that economic inequality to translate into political inequality, for example, people who have a lot of money can, in fact, buy elected representatives, then I have a problem with that. And so how do we think about preserving the, the economic system in this country, which has created not only tremendous wealth for people in this world, in this country, but around the world, while at the same time thinking, what, what's the right balance to have in terms of our political system? How much economic inequality are we willing to tolerate in our country? You know, we, we now have a situation where our economy creates a lot of value for people who hold capital. You know, globalism has been great for people who hold capital. Uh, the technology revolution, which of course is centered right out here in Silicon Valley, has created a lot of value for people who hold capital. But if you're not well educated, if you're a person who has a labor job, all of those things have actually been bad for you because now machines take your place. Labor arbitrage takes your job away. So how do we try to have a balanced economy where everybody is included without losing what's driven the, the fundamental strength of our country for years, which has been the economic system that we have. I can't answer all those questions, but I think, again, the point I'm making is it's not a choice between one thing or the other. Uh, certainly not ask you to answer all those questions, um, but we'll ask you to answer one particular one. We're relying on decisive leaders like you in healthcare. Um, we have a system that's hard for many of us to be optimistic about. Um, you're already highly influential in the system. If you could be king for the day, what's the one thing you'd change about the healthcare system in this country? I would make it patient-centered. I think the incentives in the system drive people away from what's good for patients. I'm a, I'm a CEO of a pharmaceutical company. I think Merck does great things in the world. Um, but when you sit down with our, our friends in the insurance business, they have different economic incentives. Physicians have different economic incentives. I think the only way in which we can actually come together and kind of get alignment around the cost of the system, 
around the value of the system and the impact of the system on society and our budgets in society and on patients is to actually say, what is good for patients uh, as a whole, individually and, and from a population standpoint? I think if we could all agree that we're here to serve patients and that we want to do what's in the best interest of patients, I think that would actually help us align the really badly aligned incentives in our system right now. How does that kind of conversation start? How do you get everyone in the room together? Is it politically led? Is it industry led? You know, we're trying to do it. A, a bunch of us are going to try to come together again in June from across uh, the entire healthcare spectrum. Uh, we think of ourselves as the enlightened ones. Uh, we're all going to try to get together and see if we can have a conversation that bridges some of those gaps. I mean, if you listen to what uh, was being said the other day by President Trump and Secretary Azar, a lot of what they were focusing on is they can see how badly misaligned the incentives are in the system. So, for example, um, you hear a lot about drug pricing. Um, the system in which we uh, actually sell drugs in the commercial market is one in which if you actually lowered your list price, you'd be less competitive. You know, as an antitrust lawyer, I just can't get that through my head. The way to be non-competitive in my business is to lower your price. Well, why is that? Well, because many of the actors in the supply chain make money as a percentage of the list price. So for them, high prices are better than low prices. Okay? But if you're a person who's filling a prescription at the pharmacy counter, you're paying a copay based on the list price. So you would actually rather have a lower price. We actually ran that experiment with a hepatitis C drug that we came out with a little while ago. We said, okay, we're the third entrant in the market. This is a cure. Let's see what happens if we bring this product to market significantly lower than our competition. Now, that was a category, hepatitis C, where they used to talk about the $100,000 cure. You might remember a few years ago. We said, let's see what happens if we bring in a drug at a lower price. Well, I think the experiment that we ran showed that a lot of actors in the system would disfavor a lower list price product. And there's something wrong with a system that operates that way. One of the other things in that speech um, was referring to uh, President Trump's notion, I think shared by many people, that foreign governments who run countries with public healthcare systems take advantage of American consumers because they're able to negotiate um, drugs in bulk effectively. Is that, is that notion correct? And is this something that, that, that you can change? Well, I think if you look across the world, I think it's pretty fair to say that there's some countries in the world, particularly some of the higher OECD countries in Western Europe uh, that actually don't pay their fair share of the cost of, of pharmaceutical research. I think that's pretty clear. How we change that, I, mean, I just left London where I met with some of the top health officials and I, I have news for the president. They're, they're, they're not actually interested in paying more for our drugs. <laughs> I mean, they're pretty clear about that. They actually found some of those comments mildly amusing, as they say in London. <laughs> It's a real, real shocker. They didn't want to pay more for them. Um. The problem is, though, of course, if Americans didn't, quote, overpay for drugs, there would be no drugs. I mean, that's the sad truth of, of, of the matter. At the end of the day, the only thing worse than Americans paying a very substantial amount for drugs is Americans not paying a substantial amount for drugs. 
because if they didn't, frankly, we couldn't raise the capital to take the risk that we do in R&D. You, you take risk in R&D for, um, for some diseases that you're not planning on making any money on. Um, you mentioned that today you, you shipped Ebola vaccine uh, for free to the Congo. You, in the past, um, Merck developed a cure for River Valley fever. Uh, what is it, when is it that you choose to, to go after these, uh, these particular diseases? How, how, do you, how do you come up with that? So the way that we think about our R&D enterprise at Merck is that we're pretty much agnostic to therapeutic category, and we're pretty much agnostic to modality. That is to say, we don't say we want to do a small molecule or a vaccine or a biologic, and we don't say we want to do this disease or that disease. We try to follow the scientific opportunities that we get. And the reason that we ended up in Ebola was the work that we were doing in our vaccine research organization really lent itself to doing something about Ebola at a time when, frankly, we had that last outbreak in Western Africa, Sierra Leone, uh, Guinea, Liberia, which killed 11,000 people and, and made 25,000 people sick before we got it under control. We were able to look at some of the work that had been done, pioneering work done in elsewhere, and say, the work that we know how to do inside Merck to sort of purify the antigen, to make sure that we bring forward the right kinds of steps to go from just having an antigen to actually having a full-fledged, safe vaccine. This is what we do every day. We thought if we took that program over, if we paid for that IP, if we brought it in-house, there was a good chance that we could do something for the world. And I'm very proud that in the field tests that drug, that vaccine has been shown to be, so far, 100% effective. That's amazing. Um, and Merck, Merck does a lot more. Well, it's hard to be more than 100%, I think. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Merck does a lot more for, um, for, for causes. And one, one cause I've heard you speak about particularly passionately is uh, preventing the death of women in childbirth. Yeah, yes. Why is this something you're so passionate about or, or that Merck is so passionate about? So, uh, you know, I think I don't want to sound like I'm just a booster for Merck, but I will say that the company has, as part of its ethos, the concept that we should be contributing to humanity. And we don't just say, well, we're contributing to humanity because the medicines and vaccines that we make actually have a positive impact. I have to say this industry has a lot to be proud of. At the beginning of the 20th century, global life expectancy was less than 40 years. It's now above 70 years, largely driven by the innovations by Merck and other companies. But we don't say, because we invented a measles vaccine, which probably has saved 20 million children's lives over the last 15 years, that that's all we need to do. We need to also look at those things that we're not required to do, and we need to find areas where we can bring both our financial resources as well as our scientific expertise to bear. And we just chose maternal mortality because there's 80% of women who die in childbirth die from preventable causes. And, um, you know, just to give you some data, you know, people think this is a problem in sub-Saharan Africa or India or or other poor places in the world. In New York City, the chance that a black woman dies in childbirth is 12 times higher than the chance that a white woman will die in childbirth. 12 times higher. If you look across all OECD countries in maternal mortality, the US ranks 32nd out of 35 countries. I mean, that's an amazing statistic. 
So as we look at those things, we know what to do. The problem in maternal mortality is that we don't have these clear protocols to deal with the issues like hemorrhaging, like spikes in blood pressure, like sepsis. It used to be in this country, if you had a heart attack, you died. Now you don't die anymore because there are clear protocols to what to do when somebody presents at a hospital with a heart attack. So we just decided that we would devote a half a billion dollars over 10 years to seeing how we could reduce preventable cases of maternal mortality. And we feel good about that. But there's also a business benefit to that. Because when we go to recruit world-class scientists that come out of academia, those kinds of things are evidence to them of what the company really cares about. And I think it's a tremendous competitive advantage when people can see the kind of impact that we're having in areas like that. You mentioned a truly horrifying statistic, which is that black mothers are far more likely to die than white mothers in New yeah, York City. Yeah, only 12 times more. Um, is, this, is this an example of, of, of institutionalized bias? What, what, what are the factors behind this, and what can be done about them? So again, in the, con- in the, in the spirit of having a nuanced conversation, I won't label it as just a pr- the product of institutional bias, but clearly there is institutional bias because the same studies that show a black woman is 12 times more likely to die than a white woman in China show that it almost doesn't matter what the socioeconomic status of the black woman is. So even when they have insurance, even when they present, they don't get the same care. There's also the issue of what happens in their environment, right? And so... So from my perspective, that is an issue, I think, in this case, because even if you control for um, socioeconomic status, an African-American woman in New York City with an advanced degree is more likely to die than a white woman without a high school degree. And I think it's pretty hard to square those things without looking at how the healthcare system delivers care to different people. There are clearly issues more broadly in society, um, and we've all heard about the opportunities gap before. You mentioned this earlier at the beginning of the interview. In the past, I've heard you also mention an access gap for minorities in business. Can you unpack this idea a little further for us? Sure. When I talk about the opportunity gap, I mean two things, and I'll get to access gap. So I talked about being bused as part of the experimentation when I was a young child in Philadelphia, being bused to um, majority schools, white schools, let's call them what they were. Um, so what did that do for me? While when I was in elementary and middle and high school, I didn't think of myself as a student. I went to schools where the ambient standard for education was very high. I didn't know it was higher than the kids that I were, was playing with in my neighborhood in the summers, but the ambient standard was very high. So when you took standardized tests, you came across as being very prepared for those things. Um, so that closed one form of opportunity gap. Also, when you go into business, or in my case, into the practice of law, the uh, opportunity to work on the best cases isn't distributed evenly. Uh, this is the stock and trade of lawyers. In my case, I was very fortunate that, um, that the then general counsel of Merck took an interest in me and made sure that I got really good cases, and then I learned to try sophisticated cases, and that made my career what it is. So one form of opportunity gap was education. The other form of opportunity gap is once I arrived in the institution, who got the best opportunities inside the institution? And then the third one is this access gap. So the access gap is what I would define as being 
do people have access to the people in the firm who can make or break their career? So I sit before you as the CEO of Merck, and the reason I am the CEO of Merck is that Roy Vagelos, who was the CEO, too removed from me, took an interest in me, hired me in the company as a lawyer, called me into his office as soon as he got me to sign up and said, you cannot be a lawyer. I said to him, what do you mean? I'd like to contribute to Merck in my own discipline. His reply was, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. We're in the medicine business. We're not in the legal business. And he forced me out of my comfort level. And as a result of that, I got access to working in broader areas of the company as I sit here today. I realize that I'm the product of being given access to those broader opportunities inside the company. So that is an important issue. There was a, there was a New York Times front page story, you might have seen it last fall, that said the majority of both men and women are uncomfortable with close mentoring relationships between men and women. Well, if that's the case, then we're putting women in a position where they lack the mentorship and the sponsorship that's necessary to be successful in business. And so we have to be mindful that you know, talent may be evenly distributed. I believe it is. But opportunities and access are not evenly distributed. You're at the very top now. Um, you, you have access to, to boardrooms that none of us are able to sit in. Minority underrepresentation on boards has received a lot of attention from the media in the last few years. From your perspective, from where you sit, do you think attitudes and perceptions in boards is really changing? So I have access to a limited number of boards, of course. My board is extremely enlightened. <laughs> Pete Wendell's in the front row. <laughs> no, I do think, I do think that, um, generally speaking, the conversation is happening around boardrooms about representation, about um, diversity. I think that there still are challenges. So, for example, there's a, a lot of focus now on recruiting women to boards. I'll use that as an example. Um, but... The selection criteria have lagged that conversation. So everybody's eager to recruit women to boards, but they still say we want CEOs. Well, there are more CEOs with the first name Michael than there are women CEOs in the Fortune 500. So if you're going to insist on women and saying that you have to use the same traditional criteria, then you're at odds with your actual intent. So I think we have to open up our minds because there's talent everywhere. And I think we have to be open. But when you have that conversation, you have to guard against the reaction that you're lowering the standards now. You know, we're bringing women into the boardroom, but we've lowered the standards. Uh, and in fact, actually, I think the, the biggest problem with boards uh, is groupthink. And so if you get a bunch of people who come from the same background, they're more likely to see this, the problem the same way than people who come from different backgrounds. The value of my board, frankly, is two things. They bring varied experiences that are very different from the management teams, including in the outside-in view of Merck. Uh, and the other one is that while they're empathetic, they're just not too empathetic so that they don't let us get away with our bullshit. So, 
at the end of the day, you want people who come into the boardroom with very different experiences and perspectives. That's how you get the best deliberations. You remain one of the very few minority CEOs in the Fortune 500. Yeah, there are three of us out of 500. We're all there used to be, to be six of us in the happy days, the halcyon days of African-American CEOs a few years. There were a whole six out of 500. Now there are three. We're all hoping to be leaders in the future. What do you want all of us to do to make sure we change this for the better? So I think this issue of diversity is one of these issues that I started off saying is a very challenging and nuanced issue that it's really difficult to discuss in corporate America because what happens in the conversation inevitably is people say, in effect, let me tell you what my experience is and you're not allowed to challenge my experience. And that leads people to retreat to different camps, to be defensive, to engage in the rhetoric of blame, which doesn't solve anything as far as I'm concerned. So I would say that uh, for the young students who are here today, I hope that you actually understand the points that I made about how opportunity and access isn't distributed. And I hope that you're willing to take steps to ensure that we close those gaps, whether you're talking about what's happening in public schools in our society, uh, whether you're talking about what's happening in corporations. I think enlightened leaders can provide those opportunities. I'll say it for the last time. I am the product of a CEO who looked at me and thought that I had much more potential than I ever would have dreamed that I would have had. I hope I've done a good job as the CEO of Merck, but the opportunity came from somebody who was willing to invest in me. So, Ken, before we turn to audience Q&A, I've got one last huge societal problem for you to solve for us. Okay. Uh, if you succeed at your job, you're saving and prolonging lives. Um, it's obviously a good thing, but does an aging population and the associated burdens worry you? Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, we talk about the cost of the healthcare system of, of our drugs. So that's certainly a challenge for the healthcare system, but the fundamental challenge in our healthcare system is chronic disease. 90% of the costs in the healthcare system is from chronic disease, and chronic disease is correlated with age. So the good, the good news is with all of these medical advances, people are living longer. Longevity is a good thing. But when it comes to healthcare consumption, longevity isn't a good thing. The older people are, the more healthcare services they need. And as a compassionate society, I would hope the more healthcare services we're willing to give them. But the aging of our society is a major challenge for the economics of our healthcare system. In fact, some estimates are that a third of all healthcare spending is in the last two months of life. Um, we have to think about that, and we have to think about what's the compassionate and rational way to deal with people as they age. Thank you. I think we'll turn now to the audience for any questions. I was told that Stanford students ask really hard and rude questions. <laughs> and that's why I came. Hello, my name is Sean. Uh, I'm visiting Hi, Sean. from Vancouver. I live in a hacker home right now with 15 to 20 other people, brilliant people. Uh, this leads to some interesting conversations. You spoke about the conflict between democracy and capitalism. Has democracy and capitalism ever coexisted? And what if they are incompatible? 
In the past, when democracy and capitalism coexisted, democracy was restricted to the few. The colonies, the slaves, the coolies, they could not vote. But when democracy is extended to all within the economic system, what happens? In Europe, you see these political parties in France and Netherlands, and the issue is immigration. So this is the topic we were discussing at home yesterday. So if you heard me to say that there's some major irreconcilable conflict between capitalism and democracy, then I misspoke. I don't think I said that, but that's not what I meant to say. What I did say is that part of the free market system is economic inequality. And that as a democracy, we have to be willing to ask ourselves the question, if we're willing to tolerate economic inequality, because that's intrinsic to the free market system, and I believe it is, how much political inequality are we willing to tolerate as part of our democracy? So I would use campaign finance as an example of that. As our Supreme Court has articulated in a case called Buckley versus Vallejo, individuals have unlimited amounts that they can spend on indirect political contributions. There's a limit to what you can actually give to a candidate because we don't want the quid pro quo. But at the same time, wealthy people on the left think George Soros, wealthy people on the right think the Koch brothers can spend unlimited amounts of money. In my hometown of Philadelphia, we recently had a, a district attorney that was elected essentially because George Soros bought all the airtime to run commercials for somebody who previously had not been heard of. So he, in effect, installed our district attorney. What I was saying is I have problems with that economic inequality becoming political inequality. And I think as a society, we have to ask ourselves, how much economic inequality do we want to have as a society, put differently? What kind of social welfare systems do we want to have in our society? How are we going to deal with the people who are left behind by things like technology and globalization? I think those are questions, and they are pressing questions for our democracy. Around the world, you are seeing, as you said, people who are looking to prevent immigrants from coming into countries, for example. The challenge has been, historically, what do those countries do about the displaced among their own populations? In this country, we see a tremendous reaction by people. I think it explains the last presidential election. A lot of people who feel displaced in our economy, they feel ignored. They feel uncared for. I, the point I was making is, because we have a free market system that inherently provides a certain level of economic inequality, we still have to have the conversation in our democracy about how do we achieve some level of political equality, whether it's education, whether it's health care. I don't think we should necessarily say if somebody has a lot of money, they get a good education. If you're born in my old neighborhood, you get a bad education. That's what I was actually trying to say. So maybe I wasn't clear, and I apologize for that. Ken, thank you so much for joining. Um, I had a question about R&D productivity. Oh, sorry, my name is Archit. I'm a second year MBA student. Hi. Um, <laughs> I had a question about R&D productivity. In the past, large pharma companies have been known for the investments they've made in research and development, and that's what creates new drugs to market. Recently, R&D productivity has really created for many of the major pharma companies in the United States. I was wondering if you could talk about what the future of Merck's R&D looks, looks like and what that means for Merck as a company as a whole. Thank you for the question. It's, um, you know, I've been the CEO of Merck for eight years um, and president a year before that. 
If there's one thing that I tried to, to really establish in my time, it was that the defining characteristic of Merck was always going to be R&D. And when I took over, there was a period of time when the market was putting tremendous pressure on pharmaceutical CEOs to cut their budgets and to redistribute that money to shareholders because for a long period of time, R&D had been unproductive. The challenge that the business model has now is it's $2.5 billion on average to develop a new drug. It takes 12 to 15 years to develop a new drug. So the cost of R&D goes up. The hurdles for clinical and commercial and regulatory approval and success keep going up. And the net prices keep going down. So that's not a great model. But, um, but I also think that there are waves of scientific innovation. And I, when I became CEO, Merck had not introduced a new drug for about six or seven years. And I think some of my board members quite rightly challenged whether or not that was sort of a fundamental problem that would continue to be the case. Uh, we've had tremendous breakthroughs, particularly in the cancer area. We now have a drug that if you have non-small cell lung cancer, it reduces the risk of death by 50%. 160,000 people a year die of non-small cell lung cancer. So reducing the death by 50% is a pretty, pretty big thing. Um, so I guess to answer your question, I can't speak for every large pharmaceutical company, but I can say at Merck, we will continue to do R&D in good times and in bad times until they fire me. <laughs> Which is a possibility, too. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. My name is Jacob Stern. I'm an MBA one. Uh, to return to the question of economic inequality translating to political inequality, uh, Merck has spent some number of millions of dollars each year on lobbying over the past few years. and We've mm -hmm. seen this uproar in the news over recent contributions from Novartis. Mm -hmm. What role do you think the corporations have to play in sort of reducing that gap in versus in individuals? So I, would, I can't speak for all corporations. I can only speak for Merck. I can say that the, the lobbying that we do, first of all, we try not to ever be involved in the kind of thing that happened at Novartis. I think that's quite unfortunate, uh, uh, what happened with Novartis, AT&T, and whoever else gave money to Mr. Cohen. We believe we have a role to help people think about these really difficult issues that we talked about in healthcare, right? So for example, when people say we should re-import drugs from Canada, we believe that we should be heard and explaining why that's not a good policy solution. So what we call lobbying, we think of it as being education. We don't think of it as buying access to elected representatives. At the end of the day, the people who are sitting in Congress, representatives and the senators, don't understand health care nearly as much as our physicians do. And so if we're going to talk about the future of cancer, if we're going to talk about the future of Alzheimer's, if we're going to talk about the future of HIV AIDS, then we need to help them make educated decisions about healthcare policy. And that's the role that I see of a company like Merck. And so you call that lobbying. It sort of is a broad phrase. We try to think of ourselves as having constructive policy solutions to these kinds of problems. And we try to convey them to our elected representatives. Hi, Ken. Uh, Hi. My name's Vince. Uh, thanks for being here today. I'm sure. a second-year MBA student. Um, so uh, as a person to call myself, one of the things that I've really grappled with is the tension between doing good and doing well, um, or uh, another way of thinking of it is climbing the ladder versus like pulling the people up underneath you. And I 
you know, again, as a person of color, you uh, have this kind of vantage into simultaneously the most, you know, destitute and disadvantaged populations, and then, you know, places like here of just like unfathomable wealth. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you've navigated that tension um, in your career. It's a really good question, and it's one that actually my, my viewpoint changed from the time when I was really young. Uh, when I was really young, uh, as a lawyer, I wanted to be a legal aid lawyer and, and represent poor people. And then I realized, even in the practice of law, that these institutions can do more for individuals than, than I could ever do. So, uh, you know, I would say that the way that I would answer your question is become a CEO. Okay. Because as CEO Merck, um, I actually have a lot to say with where we actually focus our resources, how we allocate our capital. I'm very proud, if you read the Wall Street Journal today, the first shipments of Ebola vaccine have been shipped to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, that's a Merck vaccine, 100% effective. We didn't have to do that program. There is no commercial value in an Ebola vaccine. Zippo. Zilch. But I'm in a position, along with my head of research, to say, is this the kind of humanitarian thing that Merck should be able to do? You have to be in the room. It's the, you know, the thing from Hamilton. I want to be in the room where it happens. Be in the room where it happens is my advice to you. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, my name is Stephanie Young. I'm an MBA student as well. Um, I had a question for you about globalization, which you mentioned earlier in your, in your talk. Um, my question's about, in today's world, we see these large powerhouse pharma companies cropping up outside of the U.S. and large amounts of capital that you were mentioning before being poured into these companies. Mm -hmm. Like um, in China, for example. Uh, we had a chance to visit the Shanghai Pharma Company, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, you have these regulatory agencies across the world that are doing lenient or Un, untested strategies for, for developing drugs. I was just wondering how you see Merck fitting into this global landscape and whether there are certain advantages or a global uh, strategy you can take to take advantage of some of these things. Well, <clears throat> so we think of ourselves as a global company, and we've always been a global company. Uh, so, for example, in China, there are a lot of these companies that are now popping up, and the state is investing a lot in these companies. And I think the more competition, the better. Uh, for patients in the long run. Uh, but at the same time, I actually think that uh, we want to be the kind of company that gets the best talent, because the real competition in the world uh, is for the scientific talent. The quality of Merck as a company comes down to the quality of the science, and that comes down to the quality of the scientists. So we want to be the kind of company that continues to draw the best scientific talent from around the, company, around the world. I think that's the basis for us to compete globally is to continue to get the best talent. And that's why we try to make sure that we're working on interesting scientific issues and why we stay so committed to, to science. I will say in China, uh, a couple of weeks ago, something happened that was extraordinary. The Chinese government approved our uh, nine-valent vaccine for cervical cancer in less than two weeks, and they've never done anything like that before. So it shows that the Chinese government is really willing to invest in their own people in a way that Historically, they weren't, and, and that's a good thing for the people of China. Thank you. 
Hi, my name is Chase Richard. I'm an MD, MBA student. Kind of a nerd ethics question for you. Okay. So uh, to your point of you're trying to help as many people as possible and provide them as much help as possible, those aren't necessarily zero sum, but there can be some conflict. And I started noticing as the pharmaceutical wave moves towards the checkpoint inhibitors and PD-1, PD-L1, you're addressing a large growing population of elder people, but nece not necessarily providing as much outright health as if you were targeting maybe a younger demographic with potentially smaller margins. So I'm kind of interested how either your company or your field feels about moving forward, um, playing with those two levers. So again, what we try to do is we try to look at the scientific opportunity. So the checkpoint inhibitors are things that help a lot of people who tend to be older. By the way, on the way here, I just got a note from a person who was asking for that drug for a 33-year-old woman who just had a baby and now has you know, triple negative breast cancer. So the reality of the world is it's not only older people who get cancer, but often some very young people at the prime of their lives. So, but, but taking your point, we went after that opportunity because cancer is a huge unmet medical need. Our vaccines program, we are the world's largest vaccine manufacturer. That tends to skew towards younger people because a lot of those vaccines are for pediatric and adolescents. And so, and we happen to believe that the best healthcare expenditure is to prevent disease, not to treat or cure disease after the fact. So we look at all of those opportunities. Um, our biggest drug right now is, is, is the PD-1 drug. You talked about Keytruda. Our second biggest drug is a diabetes drug, Genuvia. That happens to debilitate people in their 40s and 50s. Uh, our third biggest drug is Gardasil for HPV, and that generally tends to skew to women who are, and young men who are from 9 to 26. So it's just going after the scientific opportunity and being agnostic to whether it's young people or old people. Speaking as an old person, I'm all in favor of that. So Ken, I think uh, I'm going to ask a last, last series of questions. Okay. Um, half of us here are second year. There's a lady there who really wants to ask a question. <laughs> All right. Okay. One quick question. I couldn't. I could not do it. Uh, my name is Steph Scott. I'm class of 2018. I spent a little time in healthcare. Um, my question for you is: I think a lot of motivation of healthcare for the folks in this room. Um, innovation in healthcare is really hard because when you make a mistake, you don't break code. You break a patient. Yep. And that has caused a lot of talent drain and gap from startups and entrepreneurs and people who have big ideas from coming to healthcare with their solutions and trying to help us make the system a better place. What advice do you have for myself, my classmates, everyone in this room for how we can make the healthcare system better, how we can provide innovation to companies like Merck, what else we can do? So you're absolutely right that um, we're constrained by ethics. We're constrained by regulatory regimes. But I happen to think that there's a lot of opportunity to do the kind of innovation that you're talking about. I mean, we don't get to do 2.0, 3.0 version of our drugs, right? And that's a good thing. But at the same time, um, when you talk about innovation, you know, my daughter's an engineer. She was at Google for five years. And when I really wanted to piss her off, I used to say to her, honey, Google does innovation, but we do a form of innovation that's really hard. It's called invention. Okay, so we're working on Alzheimer's. If we're successful with the programs that we have in Alzheimer's, that will be the first 
agent that stops the death of neurons in the history of the planet. That's what we do, and I think that's very exciting. It fails most of the time, but we change the world. We don't write code, but the life expectancy did go from under 40 to above 70. And when you're facing Ebola or HIV AIDS, which you know, I was very proud when I first came to the company, we developed the first drug that when added to the standard of care made HIV AIDS a chronic manageable disease. That is what I call a big, huge deal. So Ken, about half of us here are second year MBAs. We're about to graduate. Um, we've got a month to go. We're going to have as much fun as possible in that month. <laughs> but soon, uh, reality is going to hit us in the face. So we'd like to give you the opportunity to give us some quick words of wisdom um, before we go in the form of a lightning round. Okay. So I'm going to hit you with two options and then just uh, say back the one you think is, is most appealing. Okay. So should we take time finding the perfect job or just get on the ladder? I say get on the ladder. Stay in the US or move to China? Stay in the US. Go into tech or into finance? Go into tech. Communication, should we be blunt or tactful? I think it should be tactful at all times, but honest. Um, is Bitcoin a bubble or the real deal? <laughs> well, Bill Gates says it's a bubble, so who am I to argue? Beyonce or Rihanna? I'm sorry? Beyonce or Rihanna? Beyonce. <laughs> Personal philanthropy, should we be giving time now or money later? I'd say both, really. But, but give money later. And that's the question I this gentleman over here. If you have money, you can make a big difference in the world. East Coast or West Coast? Oh, clearly East Coast. <laughs> All right. Especially Philadelphia, right? <laughs> kids now or kids later? Kids later. <laughs> Given I have to tell you, I have two. It's an overrated experience when they get to be honest. <laughs> Don't have to tell me. Uh, given the state of the world today, optimism or realism? I'd say optimism, for sure. And finally, the big one, LeBron or Jordan? No question, Jordan. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you much. Please welcome your Ken Fraser. Podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business based on the Dean Speaker Series. This interview was conducted by Jordi Kielna of the MBA Class of 2018. Our music was composed by Lily Sloan. Subscribe to our show and find us on social media at Stanford GSB. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts.